We'll turn to Acts now for our scripture reading. Acts at the end of chapter 21 begins on page 931. So Acts 21, beginning in verse 37, and we will take it uh, essentially to the end of the chapter, verse 29 of chapter 22. This is the word of God. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? This is the tribune speaking. Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And then there was a great hush He addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, and brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance, and I saw him, that's Jesus, saying to me, Make haste, and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approved 
and watching over the garments of those who killed him. He said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Well, up to this word, they listened to him. But then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they're shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do for this man's a Roman citizen? So the tribune came and said to Paul, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a very large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also, also was afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Thus far, the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. So uh, about a year or two before the events that we've just read in Acts 21, the Romans had to handle a bit of a um, disturbance in Jerusalem. There was this anonymous prophet who came from Egypt, and he had gathered a, a, a following, thousands of men, uh, really, we could say they were terrorists. Maybe that's a helpful way for us to consider what they were all about. And they bought the story from this prophet that he was the new Joshua. Um, I don't know if he was saying he was like Joshua or if he was some sort of reincarnate Joshua. But he convinced the, these followers, these zealots, that if they followed him, he would lead them in the way of Joshua, which was to recapture the promised land, which right now, of course, was under Roman occupation. And so he takes them out into the wilderness, just outside of the city of Jerusalem, in the wilderness, waiting uh, for the right moment to attack the city. And the way he said we should attack it, if, uh, this won't be surprising, if he thought he was Joshua, was to march around the city walls seven times, and at the end, what will happen? The walls came tumbling down. It will be like Jericho all over again. This will expose uh, the Roman occupants and enable this man and his band of zealots to take Jerusalem back for God. That's what he's all about. Now, Felix is the Roman governor of Judea at this time. And hearing of this plot, sent soldiers out to kind of nip it in the bud, get, stop it at the get-go. And that ended in... Um, capturing 200 of these terrorists, uh, you'll notice they're referred to as assassins um, in our text. Verse um, 38 of chapter 21. 4,000 men of the assassins were brought out into the wilderness. That's these zealots that I'm speaking of. Felix was able to capture 200 and kill another 400. The rest fled, including their leader. That's why... I said it's an anonymous man from Egypt. Uh, he was never found. Well, until now, that's what this tribune is thinking. This Roman guard who's watching over Paul. We're going to later find out that his, ma uh, his name, the tribune's name, it's in chapter 23, verse 26. His name is Claudius Lysias. Um, so uh, I'll refer to him as that throughout the remainder. Lysias 
believes now, as he's pulled Paul out of this vicious mob uh, uh, earlier and now is talking with him, uh, he thinks he's figured out uh, who this, um, this fugitive from justice is, this Egyptian uh, zealot. He thinks he's found him. Why is that? Well, because suddenly Paul asks uh, Claudius Lysias if he might be permitted to speak the crowd, speak to the crowd, and he addresses Lysias in polished Greek. And that's surprising to the Roman guard, but he gets to thinking, you know, who can speak Greek pretty well are Egyptians. And this man has been at the center of a number of riots, just like that terrorist that they haven't yet caught. Maybe I have him here. Maybe I found him. And he's sure of it. Notice his question to Paul at the end of chapter 22. It's kind of rhetorical. Verse 38. Are you not that Egyptian who recently stirred up a revolt. He's basically saying, I know who you are. You are that Egyptian. Uh, He's expecting the answer from Paul to be, yes, you've got me. But instead, this is what Paul says. No, no, no. I am a Jew. I'm not Egyptian. I'm from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. And so I beg you, let me speak to the people. And he's saying, because he's a Jew, these are my people. Let me speak to my people. Let me try to calm them down, explain the situation, um, and see if we can go from there. Now, this is the first instance of many, even in the section that we're considering today, where Paul's origins are kind of thrown into question. Who is this guy? Where does he come from? And what is he all about? His background is often assumed... His allegiances are doubted. Is he an Egyptian assassin? Is he a political zealot? Is he a rogue Pharisee trying to upturn the Jewish way of life? These are the sorts of questions that launch Paul into the first of several testimonies that he gives before a variety of tribunals here in the latter portions, the latter chapter, uh, chapters of Acts, where he seeks to vindicate himself and his calling from God. There are going to be similarities, as we'll see in the next few weeks, between these um, uh, defenses that he gives before these various tribunals. Uh, There's also differences. The similarities include his eagerness to share his testimony. Maybe you know somebody like that who, given the opportunity, they're going to share how the Lord has converted him. Paul wants to do that. He has an eagerness to share both his conversion and his call, the call that he received from God. The differences are found in the way in which Paul presents that information, and that has to do based on the context of the audience with whom he's speaking. In this instance, what we've read today, Paul's audience is this enraged Jewish mob who believe that he's been disrespectful, actually blasphemous in his stance on the customs of Moses, the customs of the Jewish people. So that's what's taking place. But we have to ask this question. Why is it that people have such a hard time pinning Paul down. Why is that? Romans, Jews, everybody has a hard time figuring out who this guy really is and what he's all about, what he's up to. Why is that? Well, friends, I want to suggest to you today that when your citizenship is in heaven, when it's in another world entirely, people in this world should have a hard time figuring you out. People should have a a difficult time pinning you down, figuring out what you're all about, 
because you operate uh, with an entire different set of convictions. You have a different goal. You don't really then fit in. There's this pilgrim mentality and outlook that should be clear, if we're Christians, should be clear to everybody else around us. Now, it doesn't mean we despise this world, but it means we're not at home here, that we're heading for another world where our true home is, and therefore the norms and the expectations of this world hold very little sway over us. And that should puzzle people. That should make them scratch their heads and say, who are you really? That's what's happening with Paul here. Paul is first accused of being this Egyptian terrorist. And then he's going to say, no, I'm a Jew by birth. And then later he's going to appeal to his Roman citizenship just after banking on his Jewish identity. Paul can't be pinned down because his ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And he says that's true for all of us if we're Christians. Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus. And so today, let's ask this question. How do heavenly citizens live in this world? How do heavenly citizens live on earth? And so much could be said on that score. But since you're still recovering from the seven points of application from Jason Holopoulos last week, I'll give you two points today. Two points. First, heavenly citizens are evangelists of the next world. Heavenly citizens are evangelists of the next world. The second, though, is also important. Heavenly citizens are engaged in this world. Maybe they seem like those are in conflict, but we'll work it out. First, heavenly citizens are evangelists of the next world. Secondly, they're still engaged in this world. So what do I mean when I say heavenly citizens are evangelists? Well, look at Paul's speech here, and we'll notice that his great aim in his defense isn't to get himself off the hook with the Jewish mob, but actually to change their hearts and to bring them into the heavenly city along with him. That's what it's all about for Paul. This is not primarily a speech trying to exonerate Paul from false accusations, although that is embedded in it. But it's primarily a speech that sets forth the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can just tell implied in Paul's testimony and his recounting of his conversion experience. He's saying, look how amazing Jesus is. You could have him too. Don't you want him? That's what Paul's doing here. So it's not a defense of Paul. It's a defense of the Christian faith. But yes, he does begin in somewhat of a disarming way for his audience. Let's look at how, how um, winsome he is and how he presents his message. He begins, we're told, at the end of chapter 21, switching from his clear Greek to now a polished Hebrew dialect, uh, likely Aramaic. And the previously enraged mob hushes up very quickly, chapter 22 and verse uh, 2 says that when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. They weren't expecting this. Well, maybe he was more familiar with their customs than they thought. Likewise, look at verse 1. He refers to them as brothers and fathers. He's showing that there's a solidarity here. He's, he's in no way antagonistic to Jews or the Jewish way of life. In fact, he reminds them, I'm part of your family. And, and not only that, I'm a Jew by birth, and then I came to Jerusalem, and I was taught by the great rabbi Gamaliel, and then I was a zealous Pharisee for many years. I even persecuted, he calls it the way, that's the Christian church. 
And then he recounts his dramatic conversion story, which we've already uh, been told by Luke in chapter 9. When he gets into the part, though, of meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, here's where he might start to lose some people. He's been building up rapport with the audience, saying, look, I'm one of you. But then he starts talking about Jesus. And you can imagine the people thinking, well, sure, this man is trying to get us to think he's one of us. But he's abandoned our faith for this new way. But look at what Paul does. He proves that the way and Judaism are not in conflict with one another. They are not far apart. In fact, actually, the one is the fulfillment of the other. And the way he proves that is twofold. First, his new commission from Christ was confirmed in verse 12 and following. Well, let's read these verses and notice how he's connecting the Jewish tradition, the Jewish faith, the Jewish people to his calling. So look at verse 12 of uh, chapter 22. And he says, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, your law, well spoken of up by all the Jews who live there, came to me, standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, receive my sight. Verse 14, he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one. Paul does three things here that soften his audience to the message of the gospel. And I want to highlight these three things. The first is that he says his calling was confirmed by Ananias, who was a devout man according to the law and well spoken of by Jews that they would have known and respected. So it's a man who has a reputation for not disregarding the law of Moses. That man is the one who's commissioned Paul to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, in verse 14... He states that the calling, Ananias states that the calling is, is um, initiated, it's coming initially from the God of our fathers, right? The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. Uh, Ananias doesn't say the God of my fathers has brought you in. No, Paul, we're on the same page here. We're part of the same family. And our God wants you to do this. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob is the God of Paul. You see how the Jewish... People listening would start to say, okay, maybe we didn't understand fully. But then third in verse 14, Paul refers to Jesus, I think strategically, with this title, the righteous one. That's not a term that's used often in the Old Testament. But in the intertestamental writings, this was one of the many titles often used for the Messiah. So the time during the second temple uh, between Malachi and Matthew, Jewish literature often referred to Um, the Messiah as the righteous one. So Paul is asserting that the person, Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment of what every Jew wanted. He's not coming, he's not crashing the system, he's fulfilling their religion. The Messiah has come. It's not a divergence from faith, a fulfillment of their faith. That's the first thing Paul does. But then to drive it home, notice what he does in verse 17. He says, after meeting Ananias, this devout Jew, he goes to where? He goes to Jerusalem. Not only that, he goes into the temple, right? He's saying, look, I, I'm submitting to the customs. I'm seeking uh, the Jewish way, and I want to find from our Jewish God what I should do. You know, somebody who discarded and discredited the Jewish faith hardly would have sought the Lord in that place, in the temple. And yet that's what he does. And guess what happens there? Jesus speaks to him, he says. Paul's laying out the evidence from his own experience That the Christian way is nothing new or novel. It is the old faith of their ancestors. And if the Jews would just see this, then they would put their faith in Christ. 
And they would become citizens of that heavenly city along with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Paul. That's his aim. That's what he's after. And so, fellow citizens, is that what we want too? Do we want to bring more citizens into the kingdom of heaven? Are you an advocate? Are you an ambassador for that heavenly place, your true homeland? Paul shows us that heavenly citizens are evangelists. They speak of their home. They make it appealing and alluring, something that people want and are attracted to. I was speaking with a friend of mine on the phone this past week, and he really he was so excited to tell me that this book that I had recommended to him, a fiction book that I read years ago and loved, and I gave it to him, and he said, I loved it. I want you to know seven different people now have read it based on my recommendation, which I gave because you recommended it to me. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. We're evangelists for the things that we love. Do you love heaven? Do you love the Lord who lives in heaven? Do you, want, do you want to be there? And do you want other people to be there too? Are we evangelists for heaven? Well, I want to suggest very seriously right now, friends, this is so important. You need to do some self-evaluation. That if people think you fit right in to this world and they're not puzzled over what sect you belong to, how to categorize you, uh, what people are yours, where you come from exactly, what you're all about. If they don't have those kinds of questions like everybody's having of Paul, I think it's because you're not talking about heaven enough. That's something that, that's convicted me. Well, maybe it's easier for me. People know I'm a pastor, and so then they automatically assume I'm for these things. Well, if they didn't know I was a pastor, would they hear me talking about heaven? And would they be able to assume, doesn't matter what my vocation is, that this is where this man's going. This is where he belongs. That's why we can't really fit a category for him down here because he belongs up there. Do you talk about heaven enough? If you've made your home here and people see you here and it makes sense to them, then you're not living the Christian life the way it's meant to be lived. Paul puzzled people. Not just the Jews, but even the Romans. Nobody could pin him down because he lived like a man who lived for another world. Heaven was in him before he was in heaven. And he wanted to bring others there with him. And so he does that by presenting Christ to this Jewish audience as the fulfillment of everything they wanted. They longed for the Messiah. They genuinely did. And he's saying, here he is. It's Jesus. Everything you've hoped for, you've dreamed for, it's in Jesus. You see, he's making him appealing and attractive to the people. The promises that they held to so dearly, they found their yes and amen in Christ. And so in Paul's defense, he's actually exonerated Jesus, not himself. And he's done so by proving. He's proving Jesus to be everything that these Jews purported to have wanted. This is great on the part of Paul. He's, he's brilliant here. And it makes me ask, then, how, how can I present Jesus to you today as everything you need? As the fulfillment of all your hopes and all of your desires. That's what Paul did for the Jews. How might I present Christ to you today in that way? Are you longing for success, maybe? It's in Christ that we are given all things. And in Christ alone. It's in Christ that we become heirs 
of heaven and reign with him? Are you longing for friendship? It's Jesus who's the friend who sticks closer than a brother. Are you looking for wisdom and insight? Jesus is the teacher, the great teacher, the one who clears the sin that clouds our mind and our discernment. The the one who says, I am the way and the truth. And that truth leads to the life. I'm all these things. Is that what you need today? Are you looking for joy, for happiness? Jesus says to his disciples, in me you will have joy. Joy that is complete. In Jesus, he gives us his spirit that produces one of the fruits of the spirit, joy. Well, maybe you're afraid this morning. Maybe you're, you're unsettled, afraid of the world, the suffering in it, all the political maneuvering. And, and what, now three things that we've shot down over, you know, North American airspace. What is going on? And maybe you're just, you're just unsettled and, and you're scared and you're anxious about tomorrow and you're uncertain. Jesus says, in me, you will have peace. Jesus is the answer to all of our greatest hopes. Our deepest needs. That's how Paul presented him to the Jews. You can have all of this and more in Christ. And I want to say, do you know where he is? He's in heaven. That's why we want to get there. Not because of the stuff that heaven provides. Eternal life. Pain-free existence. Reuniting with with lost uh, loved ones that we've lost. Those are all good things. But that's not why we want heaven. We want heaven because there we'll see Jesus face to face. Samuel Rutherford said, Oh, my Lord Jesus, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be hell. And if I could be in hell but have thee there, it would be a heaven to me. For thou art all the heaven I want. Heaven's, Heaven's not the thing that things that Jesus gives. It is Jesus. This is what another writer said. He says, you can go to heaven without health, without wealth, without honor, without pleasure, without friends, without learning, but you can never go to heaven without Christ. You need him today. Do you have him? He's your passport into glory. Do you see how he's everything that you may ever need? I, I present him as Paul presented him to the Jews, and I simply say, take him. He's for you. The citizen of heaven is an evangelist for heaven. Of course, the fact that we still live, though, in this world and worldliness lives in us means that some of Jesus' call and his commands will offend us. It will rub us the wrong way, condemning certain things that we've come to love. Even as he calls us into greater pleasures than we could have ever imagined. The idea of letting go of of lesser ones that we've turned into idols sometimes is unthinkable. And that's what happens in Acts 22. You notice the Jews are following along. They're tracking with Paul. They love everything he's saying. If I can read into it, I think they're, they're intrigued by everything he's saying until one point, what happens? They're fine until Paul says in verse 21 that Jesus commissioned him to go to the Gentiles. No, 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 no. He, he, he may be, Paul, we like this when you're saying he was the fulfillment of our hopes and our dreams, but not other people's. That's the moment where they say, raising their voices away with such a fellow from the earth, kill him. They want him dead. 
And verse 23 describes them literally rolling up their sleeves to start stoning him. Now to quell a riot before it begins, the Roman guards pull Paul back into the barracks. They bring Lysias, Claudius Lysias uh, back. Um, and, and now they don't want him to be killed before they can get any information from him. So they said, let's just torture him for a little bit and figure out what is going on. What is the deal here? So they're, they're getting ready to flog him, to whip him. And Paul says, uh, in response to this, uh, it says there, when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen? And on top of that, uncondemned. And so we learn our second important point, that heavenly citizens are still engaged in this world. Uh, Paul doing that stops them dead in their tracks. Claudius seems to scoff at Paul's claims that he could possibly be a citizen because Claudius says, you know how much money it costs me? I had to bribe people to become a Roman citizen. And then Paul says this line that really stops them dead in their tracks. But I am a Roman citizen by birth. Do you know what that means? That means that Paul is actually more legitimate in the eyes of the Roman government than the Roman soldier, the Roman uh, uh, commander here, who is trying to condemn him. Paul is actually has a higher station than him. That's why he's filled with fear, right? 29, those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune, Claudius Lysias, was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. The point is this. By appealing to this information, Paul shows that just because he's a citizen of the heavenly city does not negate his engagement in the earthly city and even his use of the rules and the practices of said city. As a Roman, he belonged to a particular system of government that offered certain benefits, and he was not about to ignore them in an act of, of overly pious spirituality. And there's a lesson, of course, for us here as well. By God's design, this world has governments that are legitimate because they're designed by God. And our engagement in the political world is a legitimate thing. Paul had already at this point written his epistle to the Romans where he instructed that every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? Because there's no authority except that which is from God and those human authorities that exist, exist because of God. So it's a legitimate thing first to have human government and then it's a legitimate thing to submit to that government. So for Paul to have ignored it would have been to ignore God's own provision to Paul at that moment. And the same is true for us. It is good and right, legitimate for us to vote, to protest at times, to participate in certain forms of activism. God places us on the earth before he places us in heaven. And so we should act like it. While we're here, we do what we can. Without falling in love with the world, we live insofar as we are able in the manner that the world operates. Without falling in love with it. But that's the difficulty, right? How can we as heavenly citizens engage with this world and not fall in love with it? Without forgetting that it's legitimate, can we also remember that it's also temporary and it's not ultimate? How do we do that? Well, Paul gives us, I think, the secret here as well. Because to what end does he engage in the governmental system of his day? Is it just to save his own skin? I don't think so. I think the reason he engages 
with the world according to the world's customs, laws, takes us back to our first point. It's so that he can be evangelist of the next world. Because guess what happens? Because Paul appeals to his Roman citizenship. Because he plays that card, he is able to, as we are going to see in the next few weeks, to give witness to Christ before the Sanhedrin, before the governor Felix, before King Agrippa, and then he will be sent on his way to give testimony even before the emperor himself. Paul is uniquely situated to testify before these mighty earthly powers. That's intimidating. But you know what Paul knows? He, he knows what Luther penned and with what we have uh, sung earlier. He was armed with that word that is above all earthly powers. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of God unto salvation. The power of God to change the heart of even a mighty king. The power of God to change the hearts of a wicked world. That's what Paul was armed with. It's what you and I have as well. Let's see that we use it. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you and we acknowledge that it can be difficult to navigate what it means to be dual citizens, to have our citizenship in heaven and to await the coming of our Savior, but also to live effectively and in an engaged manner in this world. Give us wisdom from above in that, Lord. Would we be effective evangelists of the world to come while not forgetting that this world here right now, this earth, while we've been placed here, it matters. And we want to, we want to do that which matters to the end, Lord, that many people would hear the gospel would be saved, and indeed would join us in everlasting fellowship in the kingdom of glory, which is still yet to come. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.